Amen. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. <clears throat> Continue with our Gospel of Mark, the ninth chapter, verses 30 to 37, or 33. Um, I'm going to start a little bit earlier than that. So Jesus is walking with his disciples, and um, they're talking about all sorts of things. And um, so I, I debate where to start the sermon in this. I want to give you um, a line from N.T. Wright. And what he says about this passage is this. The disciples were half understanding the half of Jesus' message they wanted to understand. They understood half of, they were half understanding the half of Jesus' message that they wanted to understand. Now listen to the text. Let's start at verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, uh, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask. Now we pick up with our screen. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? They were silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another who was the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first among you must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them. And taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me alone, but the one who sent me. Pray with me. God, oh, that we would understand more than half and that we would actually have a curiosity that said we want to know it all, regardless of the implications. In Jesus' name, amen. The disciples were half understanding the half of Jesus' message that they want to understand. This is the part they got, they thought, but they only half understood. If Jesus is the Messiah, then they are royal family and courtiers in waiting. They're in the wings to take their rightful place. They are next in line, and that's what they thought, and that's what they were debating. Who gets to sit where? Who gets the position of privilege to be at the right hand of Jesus. There are other places in the scripture, uh, later on in Mark in the 10th chapter, we'll go through that. And, and uh, we're, we're not, I'm not preaching on that, but, but there's that point at which um, Jesus will talk about this again. And he talks about it over and over in all of the gospels. The disciples begin to debate who's the greatest. And Jesus says, 
what do you, what do you care? They think that they're next in line. They think they're riding Jesus into glory. And that's just going to be um, one accomplishment after another. Jesus must have been frustrated. Because remember in, the, in verses 30 through 32, he says basically he's going to have to die and suffer. And it says in the text, they did not understand what he was saying and they were afraid to ask him. Why would you be afraid to ask Jesus? Well, you might not like what he's going to say. Better not to know than to know and not live it out. Jesus must have looked at them and and thought, what will it take? Knowing what it would take. We're going to be at Easter week in not too many days. And that's what it takes. It's interesting to me that others have said it, and I'll say it to you, that there is no privilege to be asserted by following Jesus. Let me say it again. There is no privilege to be asserted by following Jesus. It gives you no status It gives you no standing in the world. Following Jesus doesn't give you a megaphone. It doesn't give you a pulpit. It doesn't give you anything in the world that we would call status or privilege. Though many have tried and many still claim it. I stand here today with mixed emotions always every week because I come into a place that you afford me a privilege of speaking and it's a one-sided communication Uh, occasionally there's a little feedback from the amen corner (laughs) but most of the time yeah yeah and that's good but most of the time it's just me talking and you making a determination whether it was valuable to you or not. But it's a mixed bag to be up here because there's nothing about following Jesus that can be claimed in this space. Two examples of following Jesus that negate the greatest debate. And Jesus says one of them, whoever would be first among you must be last. Whoever wants to be great must be servant of all. Jesus says, watch me, I'll show you how you do it. I'll show you how you do that servant thing. Just watch me. Follow me. Do as I do. And what I say. Because I actually do what I say. Unlike your other teachers. And the second thing that negates it is this. If you welcome a child, you in effect welcome me. You welcome God alone. Children had no status in the world. They were merely property. Children and women had no status in Jesus' world. 
Children, women, slaves had no status in Jesus' world. They were without privilege. And yet Jesus raises up the value of all those people. If you welcome a child, if you welcome somebody that has no standing, you welcome me. Wow. When you welcome somebody that has no power in this culture, that has no standing in this world, Jesus says you welcome me. That's Mother Teresa. She would talk about how she managed to deal with the poorest of the poor. And if you've been anywhere near the poorest of the poor, you'll understand how hard that is. And what she would say about it is, um, I can be patient because I see my patient, Jesus. And that's who I'm giving to. She saw Jesus in the face of the poorest of the poor. And in Calcutta and other places in the world, these would be people whose faces had been eaten by disease. These would be people that smelled awful because of infection. These would be people that were dying. She, she dealt with the worst of the worst. And she saw Jesus. Privilege seeks status. I shared a little bit last week. I'll go back to it again. Thomas Jefferson. We hold these things to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Enlightenment values, friends, straight from France, straight from England in the 18th century. This is philosophers trying to make sense of their world. And they give Christianity a strange gift. And the gift is individualism in the faith. It doesn't happen until about then, where people think of having personal faith. Mine, I get to hold on to it. It's Jesus and me. There's plenty of encounters with God that are personal, but it was never a possession. It's not until the 18th century that Christianity became more focused on this because it was losing the influence of God in the world. So think about what he said. Again, define men. <laughs> we hold these truths that all men are created equal. Well, pretty straightforward, isn't it? White, white landowners, white male landowners, People like Washington and Jefferson. If you've ever been to Jefferson's home or to Mount Vernon, it's just amazing what they had. But they were the ones that had the privilege. They were the ones the Declaration of Independence was talking about. They weren't thinking about more than half of the people in this room. More than half of you would not be included in these statements. It 
doesn't include women, children, non-landowners, slaves, native people, or non-white landowners of any kind. Pretty small world. South Carolina had more slaves than, than, than free people when the Civil War came. In fact, they outnumbered, slaves outnumbered the rest of the population by more than about 20%. And that was the economy of South Carolina. They went from being the richest state in the Union to being the poorest after the Civil War because they had traded in human flesh. We can interpret it differently today and we choose to interpret it differently today. But Jesus' challenge to the disciples is this, there's no privilege to be had in this world. As I said last week, Christian privilege looks like this. You can die to yourself and you can live to Christ. You can be a slave of Christ or a servant of Jesus, prisoner for the Lord, or you can put others first for their own joy. Those are Christian values. That's what it's like to follow Jesus. That's why the disciples only understood half of what Jesus said and only the half of which they wished to understand because the rest was too hard. There's a Christendom confusion that we have inherited and it started in, in uh, the fourth century when Constantine became uh, emperor. Just a little background, you remember, uh, he, he conquers uh, the Roman Empire, becomes emperor, and it soon eventually will become the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, but in the f- fourth century, um, Constantine declared that Christianity would be the religion of the empire. And Christians went from being hunted to having status in the culture because the emperor had power and he had military power. That's how it worked. There was many a time, it goes all the way down to, to uh, uh, Charlemagne and some of the worst times of being Christians in our history is that it was the turn or burn or uh, the sword of the neck to convert people to say, yes, they believed. They were threatened with death if they didn't convert. I have a t-shirt. It's got 1554 on it. It's actually a, a stout by New Belgium Brewing Company. But I've had to decide, I've had to decide what, it, what happened in 1554. And, and what happened in 1554 was that uh, the death penalty was reinstated in England for the uh, offense of heresy. So if you were found to be a heretic, you were put to death. How fun was it to live then? Anybody want to go back in time? I don't think so. But Christendom and Christian nationalism all get caught up in this stuff. Status and privilege were achieved through Constantine and subsequently held on to until uh, not long ago, last hundred years. Two things Jesus' message 
is a counterpoint to status and privilege. Jesus' message is a counterpoint to status and privilege. Why? Because status and privilege won't get you the kingdom of God. Leslie Newbegin, missionary to southern India, was speaking to an international conference, and he said this. To claim that the gospel is public truth, not to seek for the gospel any coercive power in the arena of public debate, but it is to insist that the gospel must be heard as an affirmation of the truth, which must finally govern every facet of human life. It is not to ask that the gospel should exclude all other voices, only that it should be heard. The universal recognition that Jesus is Lord is something promised for the end, not for the present age. Christians, we get it wrong if we believe that getting people to declare Jesus as Lord is the point of now. It's the exclusive realm of the coming age when every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Our job, our job as Christians alone is simply that the gospel be heard and we give people freedom to choose what to do with it. We don't insist on our own way. Love isn't like that. We don't insist that our way is the only way. Love doesn't work that way. To claim that the gospel is public truth is not to seek for the gospel any course of power in the arena of public debate. None. We're not going to coerce anybody. We're not going to uh, provide carrots to people and say, if you come, I, I did youth ministry for a long time. Um, I was a youth pastor for 14 years. I knew how to get a crowd if I needed to. All you had to do was bribe students. And you just have to bribe them with a few trinkets. It's not like you have to bribe them with anything important. Free food. Okay, fair enough. Uh, coupons for things. That works. You know, you can, you can figure out whatever it is. You can get students to show up. You can get a crowd. It's not hard to do. You can do stupid skits and have kids laughing. You can make fun of kids, and the rest of the crowd will be happy with that, except the ones being made fun of. It's really easy to be coercive, but the gospel is not that. The gospel is not spectacle. The gospel isn't about reclaiming some place that's rightfully ours in government. It's not there. It's never been there. It won't be there. And we should never seek it there. And any time we do, we get weaker. We get weak because we don't know where the power belongs. Which is solely with Jesus. We only ask of government, we only ask that the gospel be heard and not stifled. That's it. We're not in charge of anything else. Humility is not coercion. 
we humbly ask that the gospel should not include, exclude all other voices. We welcome all other voices. We're not afraid. We're highly competitive, but we're not afraid. The gospel will stand or fall on its own merits and it doesn't need my help. Its own rules, it's not a manipulation of others, and it's not governance. The time will come when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. This is the promise for the end of all time. But it's not the promise for now. And we shouldn't be insisting on it. We don't usher in the kingdom. You and I don't bring this to bear. You and I are not responsible for making everything right. We simply point to it. And where the character shows up of humility, where the fruit of the Spirit shows up, we say, look at that. That's the way to go. We're constantly pointing to Jesus, to what God is doing. Well, why do I raise it? Well, our country is um, hugely polarized. Our world is hugely polarized um, around ideology, around politics, and around religion. The church is highly polarized because we've gotten the wrong idea of what our job is. Our job is pretty simple. It's quite the opposite of how the world works. Think about it. Angling for coercive power, positioning yourself in this political structure, that political one, this party, that party, Think about the power struggles that go on there. Think about just your own worldview and that you pit yours against this one over here. None of that comes from Jesus. Those are antichrist values. And I use that term specifically because they're not born of God. Seeking to elevate me and mine to Savior status is frankly not Christian. So Jesus looks at his disciples and says, well, what are you arguing about? And I could easily look at a congregation, I could look at the church in general and at large, I could look at all of our denominations, and I could look at the church around the world and say, what are you arguing about? Do you realize the number one thing that divides churches in this world is that table the one thing theologically is supposed to bring us all together, the Lord's Supper, communion, mass, whatever you want to refer to it as, the Eucharist, is the number one division theologically between us. And number two, baptism. Go figure. The two things that should bring us together separate Christians around the world. And so Jesus once again says, what are you arguing about? My way is better than their way. I have a good friend, and we were talking politics, and we have different viewpoints. And, 
and um, we were we had gotten into a rather heated conversation, both asserting our side of the issue, and it it uh, as I learned last year it created quite a rift in our friendship. And then he said this. Convincing you I'm right doesn't bring us any closer. What are you arguing about? I've shared with you my two friends in uh, Thousand Oaks. And one of the values of that church was to bridge differences. One of the, the fundamental things that they say about themselves, that we're here to build a bridge difference. And I shared with you about Bob and Gary, and Bob and Gary um, worked together during the week. They came and did um, chores around the church, however to fix it. Both of them had, one had an engineering background, the other business background. They, they couldn't have been more opposite in political viewpoints, and it was during the uh, 2016 election. So, interesting. Gary lived uh, figuratively and literally near the Reagan Library. Um, philosophically, in every other way, it was good that he lived over in that neighborhood, right near it. Bob comes out of a, something totally different and lived um, quite separately. But there they were together working. And we would ask them, so how did you do it? And you remember what, what they said. Well, it, we finally gave up trying to pull the other to our, others, to our side. We just gave it up. And Gary put it this way. It was like playing tug of war. And we just decided to lay down the rope. What a great image that you can carry with you. Put it in your pocket. Put it in the back of your mind. When is it time for you to lay down the rope and stop tugging people to your viewpoint? Next Thanksgiving, think about it. It might go well in uh, being with family, uh, with children, with parents, and think about it. For the sake of the other, I'll put down the rope. Ask our churches to follow Jesus' example instead of cherry-picking agendas. Because there's no agenda beyond Jesus that wins. That's enough. Pray with me.